You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 27 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob couldn't make today's podcast because we're recording in the morning, and I don't think Bob gets up before 11. So today we're coming to you again from the Sachin Public Library in Holbrook, New York. And if this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. Uh, the Library of Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, which I now think is Apple Podcasts, uh, Android, email, and now on Google Play as well. Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website, thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. Today joining us via Google Hangout is Ed Rossman, librarian at the Shaker Heights Library in Shaker Heights, Iowa. I almost messed up. I Ohio. Man, I always mess up state names. It's pretty funny. So Ed is the author of the book 40-plus New Revenue Sources for Libraries and Nonprofits. And he can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash rev, that's R-E-V, the number 4, L-I-B. So welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thanks a lot. You got my name right, and that's what counts. Exactly, yeah. So we're speaking with Ed today about uh, what libraries can do to raise their revenues and uh, with innovative new programming and events. But first, let's get to know a little bit more about Ed. Tell us um, uh, how you came to be a librarian, and where did you get your master's degree? Well, I've always had a passion to write, to communicate, to share. I was poet laureate of my high school. And uh, actually, when I went to uh, college... uh, I was a little bit distracted. I went from an all-boys St. Edwards High School in Lakewood, Ohio, to uh, Cleveland State University, an urban co-ed college that uh, back in the day had their bar open at 10 a.m. And so I was a little bit distracted in the beginning. And uh, then a, a friend of mine walked me up to the, uh, the 10-watt radio station at Cleveland State. Yeah. And they had these big shelves like they do in libraries, but bigger because they had these big things called albums. <laughs> I love I it. Was just, enamored with uh, all that music that was up there, and that really helped me get my act together. So I ended up getting a dual major in political science as well as communications. And then I went to Ohio University after that uh, for my first master's degree. Uh, I was one of 12 students picked from 300 applicants for their master's program in what was then called radio and TV. I worked at, uh, after that, about 50 stations around the country, uh, helping stations convert their manual systems of inventory control and business systems into co- uh, computers. Eventually, I got a job as a business manager, first at KVOD-FM in Denver, and then WENZ-FM in Cleveland. One was a classical music station. WENZ was an alternative rock station. And Cleveland's my hometown. I started uh, WENZ's first website, one of the first four in Cleveland, then a company called Clear Channel, you may have heard of them. Sure. Came with the proudness. Then and uh, they bought up all the stations and then consolidated staffs, and uh, I was laid off, basically. I asked them if they wanted to continue the website or let me run it, and they had no clue about websites. So we entered into a partnership for five years. And in that time, Lakewood Library in Ohio, high school, and I talked, and I became a supervisor in their technology center building websites, teaching classes, providing point-of-service tech support for patrons. And I was also teaching part-time at the time at Kent State University's Journalism School, a 15-week workshop called The Internet and Mass Media. And then Kent had a policy change, giving adjuncts free credit hours. 
So I took advantage of that and helped me get uh, that helped me get my master's degree in library and information science from what is now called their iSchool. Wow, they call it iSchool now, huh? Yes, yes, it's just changed over the summer. Wow, that's that's pretty interesting because I, I remember um, at one point where I got my master's degree at Long Island University, they merged um, their uh, information technology program with their uh, library science technology. Um, library science program. I don't think they've done that. I think they've since separated or maybe, I don't know. It, it's just not, they're not together anymore, but I know that that was a trend. So that's interesting. They call it iSchool now. Yeah, it combines a variety of different disciplines, mm-hmm. library science, knowledge management, and uh, computerized systems, design programs. It's a very comprehensive uh, program. So um, are you originally from Ohio? Um, tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, the, uh, originally I, I grew up in Ohio, went to Cleveland State. When I had the, uh, after getting my master's degree from Ohio University, um, I worked in Cleveland for a little bit at a subscription TV station, which uh, sent out a single channel of commercial-free programming. We had movies like The Deer Hunter. We had boxing matches. We had all sorts of things. When cable moved into uh, Cleveland, what happened was I found another job, and I lived in Fairfield County in Connecticut, in the Greenwich and the Stamford area. Uh, for about five years, working for a company called Control Data. And that's where I went out and traveled around the country uh, visiting tons of different radio stations, all different sizes of markets. And um, it was a great educational experience. I, and I also learned a lot about their business systems and ways that these different stations, whether they were rural or river, uh, urban, uh, were selling their product. And then uh, I moved to uh, Denver for five years, worked at Columbine Systems, uh, Lived in uh, Golden, Colorado. Oh, wow. The greatest aroma of industrial aroma compared to Cleveland <laughs> that you can imagine. I had like fresh brewed hops, you know, and it's just like, oh, it smelled great. People who were there are like, oh, oh we hate it when they're, when it's brewery day. But I said, no, compared to Cleveland Steel's Mills, uh, this is great, you know. And so I really uh, enjoyed Denver, and uh, that's where I worked at KBOD-FM, uh, the classical music station. And we were lucky we had, uh, we were grandfathered in. Our broadcast signal was actually, uh, through translators, broadcast in every corner of the state. Grand Junction, Steamboat Springs, Aspen, Vale, all these different mountains that would have been interrupted by the mountain ranges. Uh, we had many transmitters in all of them. So we were effectively the, uh, the one classical station music in uh, Denver, commercial classical music. Wow, that's pretty impressive, considering, you know, the mountain range and, and the, the lack of being able to, you know, I just know from being here on, on Long Island in New York, if we go to the Poconos, we lose in New York City because of, you know, the terrain. Yes. So that's yeah, pretty impressive. This, we could have translators. You could always hear, like, you know, uh, Hero Station. And uh, since then, though, I've been back in Cleveland for about 20 years. I moved back in the 90s. Clear Channel took over, and I was tired of being a broadcasting gypsy. So I, uh, all my family's here. I'm so glad that I, I came back. It was before the days of the Internet, right on the cusp of that. Uh, as I said, when I worked at the radio station here, I started their first website. You know, I think that if, I, if they would have the website and the Internet that they have nowadays, maybe I would have stayed out in Colorado or went somewhere else around the country. But I'm glad I made the move here. That really it, – and it's kind of cool that you have the radio background since we're kind of doing – Kind of like a radio thing. Uh, so you knew what I was talking about when we were setting up at the fort, when talking about the board and going through the board and all that other stuff. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I worked on those for like you know, years and uh, produced some programs in Denver. Uh, was on the air in Cleveland for about three years. Had my own show. Uh, we were uh, 
a Sunday night program called uh, the Website Show. Basically, <laughs> very descriptive. And uh, I talked about the introduction of the internet, how it was integrated with the music. Um, I got to pick my own songs, which was great. So I would pick Nine Inch Nails, B-52s, Rome, and then I would talk about the B-52s website or how you could go get lyrics on the uh, Nine Inch Nails site. Oh, that's or cool. various cool. things like that. It was, yeah, we dominated on Sunday nights for uh, 7 o'clock hour, which was cool. We, we beat out the big stations here, WNCX, WMMS. It was fun. It was a great time. That really sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. So with all that fun that you were having, you know, why, what happened to bring it to the library? What was the first library you worked in as a librarian? Um, well, Shaker is actually my second library. Uh, first, I was at Lakewood Library for about nine years. And uh, that was through the website show and things like that. And then uh, when I got my master's degree, it's like a, like, you know, a union card, a traveling card. You mm -hmm. could go to other places. I didn't have an MLIS. So I was like, I was okay. I was fortunate I had a master's and I could be a, an associate, more or less, a supervisor, actually. But then uh, at Shaker, I moved over uh, 2004 as an adult services librarian and occasionally as an interim branch manager to fill in for FMLA leaves and things of that nature. <clears throat> okay. So Lakewood was my first. Now it's, uh, it's been Shaker since uh, 2004. Wow, that's great. Uh, so every librarian has at least one unique duty uh, in their facility. Do you have a special role at Shaker? Shaker Heights? Do you call it Shaker or Shaker Heights? Shaker Heights. Okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to... They're you know, interchangeable. I didn't want to blow up a brand or something. Yeah, it's a Shaker yeah. Library. There's, there are a number of heights on the east side of Cleveland. We have University Heights and a couple other Cleveland Heights. And then there's Shaker Heights. They're like about 300 feet higher than the rest of the city. That was going to so, be my next question. Order, I hope they're higher than everybody else. Otherwise, it's yeah, pretty funny. In order to distinguish that, they kind of like say, oh, it's Shaker Heights Library. But also, um, because we don't want that brand confusion. Shaker Library is fine, so I often refer to it as that. Okay. But the, uh, I'm the proctor. I take care of uh, proctoring for this, all the tons of long-distance students, and I usually have to coordinate about five or anywhere from five to ten different testing things going on each month. It's really grown. When I first took it over around 2006, 2007, we were only getting maybe about five or six long-distance proctoring things a year, and they said, Ed, this will be really easy, and you're teaching school, and you're university adjunct you know you, you you've got the uh the cred to be able to do this i said okay fine no big deal and then it started like you know all these different places distance learning has really taken off and these students really need somebody to just like you know can you set up the test for me can you give when you're ready put the password in you know and and that's it's kind of fun i've seen students in all different sorts of different disciplines from language translation international economics medicine uh, real estate licensure. Uh, there's all sorts of different types of things that are uh, being tested over the net now, and it's, you know, I uh, enjoyed doing it. And then also, my main thing, I guess, specialty is I'm the contact person for setting up programs and individual consultations with the Service Corps of Retired Executives, SCORE. And what we did in around 2006, we set up an individual uh, system where if I see somebody or any of our staff see somebody asking for business plan books or asking about books for starting a business. We tell them about the SCORE program. We have SCORE representatives, uh, retired executives who are familiar with starting businesses, come in and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And since 2006, we've had about almost 700 consultations. And uh, 
last night we had a uh, program about getting grants that pulled about 30 people. And uh, we, I, I constantly do programs like that, starting businesses, getting grants, protecting intellectual property, things of that nature. And uh, I'm also a former chair of the Business Reference in Public Libraries Committee. It's part of BRASS, which is a division of RUSA. And so what I do with them is basically I'm a former chair. And uh, currently I chaired the Morningstar Public Librarian Support Award. And uh, this is a shameless plug. Go for it. <laughs> if anyone's out in podcasting land knows of a public librarian who handles their business collection or who assists in business research or community engagement, like classes that I had last night, this week, uh, encourage them to consider joining BRASS. It stands for uh, Business Reference and Support Section. And or give them the heads up about an award, the Morningstar Award, that can fund them uh, to the annual in New Orleans this year. What we did last year, we had about a dozen people apply for it who had had really innovative types of programs, good outreach. And, uh, you know, we we go through a, a, a good, solid selection process with various metrics and uh, pull somebody and they get the $1,200 award to get to uh, New Orleans. Is that part of ALA? Yes. Okay. Yes. The American Library Associated RUSA, the Reference Users Services Association. Okay. And then that, we're, we're like a, a division brass is a chapter of that. And there's two, uh, right now, there's two different reference committees within brass, one for public libraries, one for academic libraries. So anyone who's in the, involved in business at the uh, academic library side as well, absolutely, brass is open to them. And uh, as I'll talk about later, the uh, brass was actually one of the things that helped propel the publication of the book. Very neat. Very neat. Quick question for you um, with regard to proctoring, because this is something that, that we're struggling with over at Sachem. We're not struggling with it. We're entertaining doing it. Um, tell me about uh, what uh, you do as a proctor. You don't sit in a room with a person. You kind of sign off and, and just keep an eye on them. How does that work? Well, each school has its own set of uh, rules. And if it comes into at our Shaker library, I can do two things. I can put them at a public access computer or I can put them in a study room. And I emphasize to the school, and I've had people say, no, you can't do proctoring there then, because I can't look at them uh, like, you know, straight all the time. You know, the, what happens is, I'll get back to, let's say, University of Utah or something like that, and say, look, I cannot monitor the student the entire time of the test. I'll put them in a the study room, I'll put in the uh, password in their laptop, a lot of times they use that. They're allowed to use their own uh, devices. I'll say, or I'll have a printed uh, something that's printed, and that's uh, they'll email me the uh, printed test, and then at the right time I'll, I'll give it to them. Make sure they're in the study room. I'll occasionally look in through the windows. I can do that, but I, I just am honest with the school, saying that, um, like you know, if you're looking for constant supervision, I cannot do that. And they, uh, ninety percent of them, uh, Chris, say that's fine. Okay. You can just monitor them, like you know, especially if they're at a public computer. That's fine. They give you a set of like you know, they're allowed to use scrap paper. They're allowed to use calculator. It's an open book test. Um, they're not quite as strict as let's say doing an ACT or an ASVAB test or anything like that that would be requiring a little bit more of a strict regimen as far as taking the test. You know, nothing for like you know that would uh, an NCLEX that's a, a nursing test, but something that's a certification test 
or it's just like along the lines of different types of tests. Oftentimes, students get their grades back right away, you know, and they say, oh, I got an 80% or, oh, damn, I got to take that test. Oops, sorry. It's okay. Other words you can't use on podcasts, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we, we don't have the explicit uh, rating, but I think damn is okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, they, they'll come back and say, oh, I got to take that test over again. And I say, okay, fine. The, um, but oftentimes, uh, the last step of the process is if it's a printed test, to be able to uh, just scan it back to the instructor. Very so good. I, I just take the test and to scan it back. That takes like, you know, five to 10 minutes on my day. It's not a big deal. And, yes. the, uh, and then I confirm with them. I, I say, okay, I've sent this. You know, get back to me and make sure you've got it before I destroy it. Usually they want you to destroy the test then afterwards. Ah. After and so that's, which is fine. I don't take it to Amazon or the black market or anything like that. <laughs> hey, do you want uh, Chris's international economics test? I have it. Uh, be a nice revenue stream for the library, but uh, <laughs> I would like that. Oh, that's pretty funny. So um, we're going to talk about the ideas and concepts in your book in, in our next segment. But what was your inspiration for writing the book? Tell us, you know, what lit the fire for you. Well, good question. In 2008, uh, it, it affected the entire country. The real estate crisis it forced cutbacks in Ohio's public library fund. It was heavily funded by property taxes, and uh, that really caused a reduction in the fund, forcing us to reduce personnel and reduce service hours at Shaker. And our director asked in a survey, you know, how to cut costs. And I told him face to face, we should be thinking about cutting costs. Two words, naming rights. And uh, now you're talking about like, like, Baseball stadium kind of things, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, naming rights. We have a second floor at Shaker Library, Maine, that uh, has about five rooms that handle 50 people each. They're constantly being used. And uh, to name them instead of meeting room A, B, C, or D, after uh, the Heinen's room, the Quay Buick room, whatever. Somebody who would see, like, you know, the advertisers who would see a sponsorship valuable to them as supporting the library would pay good money because the, these rooms are often used and they're like, you know, thousands of people go by them. And then you have the benefit of like when a chapter like the, uh, uh, a ski organization says we were, we're going to have our meeting at the Quay Buick room at Shaker library. So there's extra exposures, impressions given through that mechanism, but he didn't want to do that uh, basically. And the board is uh, not necessarily on board with raising money like that as well. That's a great idea. And as you're saying this, I'm thinking from around Sage and all the different things that we have, like study room A, study room B, you know, things like that. We actually uh, named our local history room after a suffragette, which there was no, you know, financing or anything behind that. It was just a, like a, a thing we did to recognize one of the suffragettes that lived in our community. But that's a great idea. Taking you know, taking a page away from you know, uh, baseball and football. If we could have saved like you know a couple of jobs or increased the hours, like I said, we cut back on hours, service hours, availabilities in one of the branches, and uh, that was rather disruptive to the community. They were used to having a nine a.m. to nine p.m. facility instead of we had to uh, switch it around to be one p.m. to nine p.m. or nine to five thirty. Mm-hmm. So a certain, and it still carries on to this day that a couple of nights a week, 
we have to shut that branch down at 5.30. So people who are getting out of work really can't go to it to pick up their book or their DVD. And uh, same thing for the, the nannies and the people who used to love to take children to the library in early morning hours. Yeah, um, those were shut down as well. So that's what inspired me, basically. How can we get some revenue in here? Not like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions, but revenue streams, in my definition, are, you know, just streams of money, small streams of money that eventually lead to larger streams of money. If you bring in that extra capital, you bring in that extra revenue, you'll have a river of revenue that maybe you didn't have before. And it may be 5,000 from one method, other method, 10,000 from another method. Maybe you put up a cell tower, you get 60,000 a year. Uh, peanuts for some libraries, but for others, it might make the difference between keeping their doors open. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I started the book. That's a great concept. So how supportive was your director and board, you know, with you working on the book? Well, management, as far as working on the book, they really didn't come into play. I did that all on my own time, generally. Mm -hmm. But management feels that the public should pay for core services, essentially. And uh, maybe after we pass our next levy, we'll take a more proactive approach to, uh, like I advocated. Um, they did try to get passport services, one of the methods that I talk about in the book, issuing passport services and keeping the execution fee, um, which did great. Uh, Cuyahoga County Public Library did that, and they were re able to, after the 2008 crisis, they instituted that, and they were able to reestablish their Sunday hours. They had to close 28 branches. Um, or I take that back. They kept four open and closed maybe like 20. Uh, 24 of them on Sundays for like over a year. And uh, the entire passport services generated enough income. They were able to reopen those branches again on Sundays. So the, uh, the they've, Shaker has tried that, but they were rejected twice for some reason. They are trying again a third time, even as we speak, which is good. Uh, I think it's just a matter of how many times you apply to the government, like, you know, how many they were going to issue that month. But uh, regardless, uh, their attitude is basically uh, the, public through taxes and levies needs to pay for core services. And uh, my, I advocate, well, in order to keep certain things afloat or to fund specialty programs, you know, there's nothing wrong with going after private money. That makes some sense. A little bit difference there. Yeah. yeah. So how long did it take for you to write the book? I mean, I've never written a book, so, you know, I know I've heard, I have a couple friends that have, and, you know, they say, oh, this took six months, this took four years, this took eight years. You know, how long uh -huh. did this take for you? Well, about two years. It started off with a column in something called the Public Librarian's Briefcase, which for those of you in uh, podcast land, is a free resource that Brass provides. My committee, the Public, uh, uh, public Library's Reference Committee, basically wrote columns about doing different types of things along business research and training new librarians on how to be a business librarian those different types of things. And what happened was basically I did an article about naming rights shortly after this uh, 2008 thing. Well, not really shortly after, but around uh, 2013, 2014. And then from there, uh, the uh, column got 500 views within just a few days, according to Google Analytics. So that caught attention to a few people. And then I talked to uh, Approach ALA about a webinar 
that drew over a hundred different registrants, paid registrants, and they said, oh, you know, this is actually, this idea is starting to catch on using private money for libraries. They had had all sorts of books about grants, foundations, but never really approaching the private sector. So what I did was we talked about it, and then so I started writing a book around 2015. We decided to do the book, and it was published in August of 2016. So pretty much a solid year, year and a half of writing and drafts and things of that nature. Uh, so that, that worked out pretty good. I thought it was, it was relatively fast. The information that's in the book now is 2014-2015 uh, dated, you mm -hmm. know, a little bit. But thanks to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Live, I keep that current three times a week with issues that are in the book. I actually preface the little blurbs that I have in there three times a week with, this is from Chapter 5, this is Method 22, et cetera, et cetera. And I explain it if it's about crowdfunding, if it's about athletic competitions. And that could that could turn into uh, a second edition with all the with all the additions uh, you're doing to it. Uh, possibly, yeah. But it's it's more of a resource now, a current resource for the people who are like you know really um, searching around for different ways. What's happening in the world of private fundraising and revenue uh, fundraising in general? I think it's another good outlet for them, and it's a it's a unique perspective that's uh, uh, fundamentally uh, grounded in the concepts that I have in the book, which cross-pollinate the broadcasting model with the fundraising model. Yeah, that is, and it is interesting how you bring in what you've learned from, from broadcast media uh, into the library world because advertising is king in, in radio. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, things and uh, basically about the, the book process itself, one of the things I also did was I taught uh, a class called Information Literacy and Research for a company, a private college called Bryant and Stratton, which are spread throughout the, uh, New, uh, the New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania area. And uh, I did that for about 10 years. Used my, it, it helped polish my library skills. I had a lot of students who would come in and say, oh, Mr. Osman, how are you doing? I'm doing this class now or whatever. And mm. uh, that really helped practicing what I preach, basically. In doing the book, you need to have a research plan, you need to time manage really well. Keep track of your citations. That can cause a lot of problems if you don't. You said, oh, yeah, I remember this article. Dang, I can't remember exactly where I got it from. So things like that. That type of discipline is, is definitely required when you're trying to write a book, a book like this. Um, and then uh, knowing when to stop. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I could be pretty chatty. I could write for a long time. And it's just like, okay, uh, I need to know in the process, uh, you know, okay, stop researching. You know, you don't want to aim, 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 and then fire. You know, after a while, you've you got to try and wrap everything together. And Jamie Sotero, who is uh, my acquisitions editor for ALA, uh, she and others gave me really good guidance. And uh, it really was a labor of love. Every one of those methods are ways to help a library or nonprofit either keep or extend their services. And I structured it, I think, in an easy way, uh, not only to describe the methods, but to give the reader exercises they can do to get their head around the concepts, like using things like product categories to find prospects, first steps to take. And, uh, and also each chapter shows, mini chapter shows a successful best practice case study. So the challenge was 
making the broadcasting and internet marketing concepts that I'm familiar with both accessible and encouraging. You know, the book has many things they don't teach in library school. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, thanks for giving us your background and, and, and telling us about you know your process with the book and your inspiration and all that, the stuff that went along with it. Um, so I'd like to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with Ed about how libraries can find these new streams of revenue by thinking outside the box and really making a difference. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back with Ed Rossman, librarian and author of 40-plus new revenue streams for libraries and nonprofits. So innovation is something we'd love to talk about on this podcast, innovation, collaboration, all these kinds of things. So usually it's about new technology, but your book really comes up with some really interesting ways for libraries to generate revenue in a time where revenue and funding from taxpayers is stagnant or could even be on a decline in some parts of the country. Uh, you talk about creating innovative and proactive approaches to fundraising. And in that approach, the change uh, creates opportunities. Tell us about what you mean by that. Well, uh, what we need to do when we're going out and fundraising using the models that I talked about is establish value for private businesses uh, to support our programming and services. And that requires two things. A disciplined approach to prospects. In my book, I call it, and you can Google this too, moves management. Um, you can describe, uh, you can basically do a Google on that, and it's a commonly known fundraising technique. It involves four stages. The discovery process. That's where you uh, will brainstorm and find at least 25 local prospects to go approach. In one of the classes that I teach for uh, ALA, I've taught classes on this book, There'll be another one coming up in January. I don't have the dates yet, but another shameless plug. The, uh, <laughs> one library did it in Kentucky, and she tried the exercise. Instead of 25, she was amazed. She came up with 68 local sponsors wow. that they had never approached before, that they, they were local. You know, and they were, oh, my God, by going through the steps that I talked about. The, um, so what you want to do is there's a discovery process. Then there's the cultivation process where you're going in and you're talking to them. And I'll talk a little bit more about this maybe later on in the show. Uh, libraries are great as far as talking about themselves. They have a little bit of a problem sometimes talking about what they can do for businesses, I think. Sure. And there's the solicitation phase where you're talking about, the, like, you know, what you can do for them in fulfilling their business needs. And then the stewardship phase where they're talking about basically they're keeping them in the loop. They're making them feel like they're part of the uh program, part of the services, which in a way they are. So those are the four stages there. That's the first part. And then also establishing proper value um, that the real advertising pros in these organizations can get their head around. Librarians always think of terms of like, you know, of messages in terms of 
retention. Advertisers, the pros, think impressions. Libraries have had like all sorts of stats that they use, circulation stats, door counts, showing how the libraries are used and how many impressions a sponsor can receive is critical for getting a fair value out of uh, library statistics and the programs and the services and really asking for money. Establishing proper value means making sure your library product or sponsorship, no matter what it is, isn't stolen or never sold. You put it at the fair market value that these people can understand. And I have 40 different ways that that can be done uh, by using an advertising business model in terms of sponsorships and naming rights, as well as some outside the box methods like the own a day concept, passports, online merchandising, many others. And also by playing the broadcasting game of selling adjacencies, cause marketing, and using co-op advertising money to name a few techniques. So those are the different types of concepts um, we, uh, that I talk about in the book, cross-pollinating broadcasting techniques and strategies. you got to admit, broadcasting is one of the most successful industries in the country. Absolutely. And, the, uh, uh, and applying them to library and nonprofit fundraising. It does make sense. I mean, it's been a successful business model since, what, the 1930s? Yes. So. They were recession-proof. I remember when I was going for my master's degree, uh, our instructors always told us, like, you know, People always buy toothpaste. You know, the broadcasters were the ones who actually thrived. They started in the 20s, but then when the rest of the economy tanked in the 30s, they were the ones who survived, and they brought entertainment and uh, education to people. You know, and that's what libraries do. It, and that's really a, a good point in cross-pollination um, because mm-hmm. there's a commonality there. Um, so, the fir- yes. so the first hurdle with regard to implementing these changes is selling it to the library administrators and boards. How do you think your model and examples that you have in your book uh, work with a 501c3 not-for-profit status, library charters, mission statements, and, and regulations, you know, understanding that libraries are governed by different regulations or laws from state to state, county to county, and town to town. You know, how do you, you know, how do you make this work within that framework, within that almost like a constraint, uh, a fiscal restraint with how libraries can actually receive funds? It is, and I'm so glad you asked this question because I think it's kind of neglected in a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of times, libraries, uh, the, the classes in library schools and various other continuing education programs are dealing with grants, approaching foundations, those are all legal. But my methods, they're not guerrilla tactics, they're business practices, but there are constraints on the um, nonprofit organizations. So that was the trickiest part of the book. You know, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong for public entities pursuing merchandising, sponsorship, naming rights. I see plenty of, like, high school football stadiums being able to support their athletic programs by leasing out their stadiums, their names, just a name to a bank for five years. You know, those are all good in theory. Uh, in my book, I admit that there's too many jurisdictions, and I only talk about things at the federal level. And there's something called the Unrelated to Business Income Tax. It's something to consider, and there's a lot of rules about that. But basically, a library or a nonprofit organization has to watch out for that. The fiscal officers for these organizations should check the rules as to whether or not they need to fill out what's called a Form 990-T, as in tax, which is the exempt organization business income tax return. And uh, that will basically tell them if they have to pay tax on income derived from sales of 
advertising, merchandising, vending machine candy, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a publication, 598, that reviews the tax on unrelated business income of exempt organizations. So those are two powerful things that you can study at the federal level. Um, my philosophy is it's better to pay taxes on extra revenue than not to have the extra revenue. So it shouldn't stop a board or anybody else, you know. I mean, the financial officer may say, oh, geez, that's such a pain, you know. I've got like, it's only $300 of income a month. But, you know, that adds up over time. It's another sure. revenue stream. So it depends on their their policy. It's, it's better to pay taxes than not to have the extra revenue. And it's silly to pay fines. So if you did this without proper investigation, you know, it's going to cost you. So you don't want to do that. Then also in structuring your messages, uh, one of the things that's uh, public broadcasting, that's why I use them as a model. There's a difference between acknowledgments and advertising. Acknowledgments are basically saying, oh, we're grateful for this organization for helping us provide this programming. Advertising is this, um, go visit. This, advertising, this advertiser has the best fish fry in town. You got to go. Boom. You would get taxed on that rather than the acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful along those lines. For like cell tower revenue, um, you would definitely have uh, UBIT is what it's called, unrelated to business income tax. But cell tower revenue, it's lucrative enough. Go ahead, get taxed for it. Get taxed like you know, 5000 on 60000 worth of revenue. That's fine. Uh, if you do a 5K race sponsorship and you have sponsorships, registration fees, you probably won't have UBIT because it's an infrequent revenue stream. And same thing with like cafe revenue. If you had like, you know, a coffee shop, selling candy, food, stuff like that, it's a convenience. So you wouldn't necessarily have the uh, taxes on that. So depending on what revenue stream you're talking about, you know, there's all sorts of different at the federal level uh, ways to look at it and not worry about it. Go ahead and pursue that. At the local level, it's tricky. And like I said, on my Facebook page, I put uh, three times a week, I look at various methods, talk about different issues and things like that that are coming up. One city recently nixed using food trucks at a library event because uh, they wouldn't issue permits. They were planning on this event. They secured the food trucks. They arranged the deals. And then when it came to the last part of getting like, you know, setting it up, city stepped in and said, no, that was heavy politics in that situation. Uh, local restaurant owners, that weren't part of the event, kind of like put the kibosh on that, unfortunately. And then another one, another example that I've written about recently is there was a school district. A lot of schools are turning to fund, uh, crowdfunding to get supplies for their kids. Individual teachers will take on crowdfunding programs. And then one state, I believe it was Illinois, came in and said, no, you can't do that anymore because it doesn't have enough of an audit trail. You can't bring in this money from these people parents to buy crayons and coloring books or whatever it is that you needed, you know, so it's not, so they put the kibosh on that, you know, uh, my book, it talks about federal obligations for each method, okay, so all the 40 plus methods, I talk about whether or not chances are it's going to be used, and uh, it emphasizes research at the local level, you want to measure twice, cut once, you know, you don't want to start all this stuff up, and generally in the first steps, and the various other things that might come into uh, like you know, politics come into play, or if the uh, local uh, administrators come into play, the county government, whatever. It's it's a complex affair. 
but I just emphasize, do your due diligence so you don't get fined and you don't get stopped. And one thing I think we should mention, too, is that um, although this sounds extremely discouraging, uh, if you do the, the homework, this can become something that can be done, especially with regard to food trucks, because I know we do food trucks when we have events over at Sachem. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it, it can become a regular thing that becomes an attraction in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. You know, it's, it's a, those are powerful tools. They use them a lot in the city of Cleveland all the time. And a lot of different, uh, there was one over the summertime that had like a, uh, actually, a, it was called the Meltdown. There's a restaurant called the Melt. They specialize in melt sandwiches, big stuffed grilled cheese types of things. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of good food. They actually sponsored the race, but then they allowed four or five different food trucks to also come in and provide food, different types of food for the community who is assembling for the race and like cheering people on. So it, it just depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. And um, it depends on different types of things. I mentioned that a lot in the uh, athletic competitions, how important it is to get the clearances for whatever jurisdictions you have to be running through. Um, it may take a while. You just can't uh, plan some things out like, you know, and expect to do them within the next month or two, just due to the nature of the government bureaucracy. Right. So you shouldn't let that bureaucracy discourage you. You just have to have a plan in place. No, you just have to plan your homework and say, okay. Now, if we need a fast fundraiser, uh, I called the state of Ohio. Uh, the Ohio Library Council has a great government regulations office. And so I checked with them. I said, 50-50 raffles. It's gambling. A lot of people are familiar with it. Is it okay for libraries to do? Phone call came in. Lady got back and said, oh, yeah, yeah. Due to section blah, 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 you folks could do that if you'd like. And so, like, yeah, I, I play 50-50 raffles going to uh, – uh, Cleveland Browns games, actually, and uh, the different types of uh, organizations. I, I see those all the time. And if a library wanted to take that extra step in the community in order to, you could say, okay, this has helped to fund our uh, our Black Studies collection or anything else. You don't necessarily have to have a specific target. That's always good if you do. Mm-hmm. But if it's just for general operating funds or uh, a summer reading program, um, 50-50 raffles are great. They engage the community, and it's an impulse kind of thing. And you may make like you know two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars a week, but I'll tell you, it's it's going to be competitive with whatever money you're getting from your fines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's um, let's talk about the methods that you describe in your book to facilitate or even create new streams on their own. Um, by that I mean, does you know one tactic? organically cause more streams to come about? Does, does this become like a, um, lack of a better way to describe it, a good mold that grows on the wall? <laughs> that's, that's a great analogy. Um, yeah, I think uh, the things such as uh, online shopping. In my uh, webinars, uh, usually I, I mention three or four different fast track techniques in order to raise money. And uh, without, like, you know, being like uh, I'm not paid by these guys, but Cafe Press is a organization that does, it has, if you did like a Google Cafe Press nonprofits, you'll see a great program set up that nonprofits can use. There's like zero dollar investment. And what they do is they basically set up a online shopping place for you that you could sell mugs or t-shirts or anything with the library brand or a nonprofit brand. So let's say you try that. You have um, six different types of merchandise. We did this at WENZ. We had T-shirts. Um, we had some 
uh, rain ponchos, and some other things. We just saw that, like, you know, certain aspects of the inventory weren't moving, so we would, like, you know, buy more of those. And then also, we could have, if we wanted to, set up a, a physical brick-and-mortar type of merchandise store for the radio station. Um, a lot of libraries have this. They're bigger. You know, I've seen them in the Enoch Pratt Library in Baltimore, and uh, I believe uh, Kidden Public Library also has a gift shop. Uh, every hospital I've ever been in, and I've been in quite a few lately, unfortunately, they have had gift shops. And that's basically, they're like, you know, uh, they don't have them online. They started organically. It's like just in the facility. Right. But uh, let's say you do have a, <clears throat> excuse me, you start off with online marketing. And you find out that it's popular and people are buying them. You have a spike in the seasons when it's a holiday season or graduation season. You want to get something from a, for a student for a library and uh, or at the beginning of the school year. So to encourage their reading habits or bookmarks or anything. Mm -hmm. So what happens then is that you would basically be able to uh, maybe eventually stock your own uh, vendor based type of, of thing within your facility. Mm -hmm. And then from there, grow that out. There was one library, I believe it was in Salt Lake, uh, that actually uh, started, uh, it was almost like cause marketing. By cause marketing, I mean things that deal with like one specific cause. The um, They started to, and got different retailers to come in, their eyeglasses places, um, their holistic medicine and plants, you know, things that encouraged learning, things that encouraged well-being. And they actually like bought some storefronts near the library helped renovate that district by having these small businesses come in and that was through the original idea of like you know having a uh, online shopping seeing if people want to spend money outside of like you know uh, towards the library as opposed to giving it to you know a, a shop that uh, there used to be some knowledge shop i think downtown we don't have that anymore that sold educational games Maybe they have those out in New York. I can't remember what the name of it was right now. But uh, those are the different types of things that can organically, like, you know, grow your, uh, from one method, add on other revenue streams. Well, it's interesting you, you talk about that because I, I, I understand where you're coming from, from the radio, um, the radio uh, angle of it. Um, tell me about, since it's a good segue to the next question, about uh, the concept that you had about pub the public broadcasting model and how it applies to libraries and what libraries can be doing to use that same model that, that the public broadcasting uh, uh, sector was doing. Sure. First of all, the reason why I used it was because not only is it applicable, but librarians love public broadcasting. Yes, indeed. They, a lot of them watch uh, all the different programs, and we just had Vietnam on and various other things. When the government, government started basically public broadcasting in the 60s. Then they had a throttle back when they had budget problems in the 80s. And public broadcasting almost went dark. NPR almost went bankrupt. And so what they had to do is become a little bit more aggressive. They had always had like the membership drives and auctions and things like that, but they had to step it up as far as selling commercial advertising, which the professional cadre hated, you know, but they accepted it. They emphasize acknowledgments versus advertising. So just as you would go into a museum, Chris, I walk through the Cleveland Art Museum, I say this room of uh, this showing of Picasso funded by uh, Lubrizol. Now, nothing to do with the oil company. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to do with like Picasso, but gosh darn it, people are seeing that name every time they walk in to look at the Picassos. 
So that's what public broadcasting did. Acknowledgements versus advertising. And the public accepted it. Uh, look at the Vietnam series. Did you watch that in the last... Uh, yes. In fact, I, I couldn't catch all of it because it was so long and it was on so late at night for me. So I'm, I'm actually DVRing it. And it's on. They're playing it again. But, oh, my God, it's the amount of people talking about it is insane. Yes. And did you watch the... Uh, in the beginning, um, how many foundations there were? Yes. At the beginning of the show? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then how many corporate sponsors were there? Exactly. And now our PBS yeah. station here is now doing a campaign drive and playing them back to back to back with a, with a fun drive in between. Uh-huh. But they just had, they had at least a dozen foundations supported it, but only one major corporate advertiser, Bank of America. And I don't know if you remember their message. I don't. I don't. I don't either. <laughs> no. But I remember I saw BOA right after all the foundation things. And I'm sure they paid a lot of money for that exclusive right. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, you know, okay. They didn't, like, emphasize the message that they had. And that's what I mean. My brands are, like, you know, a little skittish as far as going after somebody like a Bank of America. Mm-hmm. They might eventually bias us in our collection development or something like that. I don't think Bank of America biased Ken Burns at all as far as, like, you know, producing his program. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> they, they just wanted to be able to be somebody who could support giving something that was a quality product to the public. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, you know, the lesson from public broadcasting, to be able to use of that private money to support services that otherwise you may not have. It's true. It's very, very true. Uh, so... You know, you were talking before uh, in our first segment about um, honoring, uh, not honoring, but, uh, you know, naming rooms and and things like that as as a form of revenue stream. How can libraries create revenue through memorials, art shows, competitions, and other events and opportunities? I know where I am at Sachem and and a previous library that I worked at, they did the memorial bricks, and that was um, Mm -hmm. something that we've done. But tell us a little bit how we how we can go a little deeper, maybe with art shows, competitions, and other types of events. Well, in the appendix of my books, not to plug it at all, I've got a money matrix. It's a grid that shows all 40 methods, 40 plus, and each method shows, among other things, the source of funds. Mm-hmm. And it shows high or low startup costs, tax potential, method of a contract, continuing or just a one-time event, those different types of things the book talks about. And so then that makes it easier for people to go down and look to see, okay, do we want just public money or do we want a combination? Now, to save time going into like each one of those, which I I know we don't want to do necessarily, consider if the money's coming from the public or private sources. Mm -hmm. We were talking about 50-50 raffles. That would be from the public. The own-a-day concept where one day in the month, the organization has a person's name prominent uh, on all its marketing channels. That could be public for someone's birthday, maybe, rather than spending money at Chuck E. Cheese, or from a, a local private company. Uh, the own-a-day method could be both. And actually, there's a um, the Williams Library, in, uh, I believe it's in Pennsylvania, they won a Gale uh, Financial Development Award for doing that. They sell about 10 of these days a month for $100 each. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's a little bit of coordination. They use the broadcast model that I talked about in the book in order to coordinate whose name's going on where. and uh, But they make a, it's a great revenue stream for them. They make 
uh, $15,000 a year through that. And they engage their community better. If you if, like, you know, you've got a, a young child who's having a birthday. Uh, it's great. Instead of taking them to, like I said, a little Chuck E. Cheese or McDonald's land or something like that, if they'd like to read, encourage that habit by taking them to the library and they see their name on the, uh, like, you know, the front posters and digital signs. They see it in the newsletter. Mm-hmm. Like Ed Rossman's birthday. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, Especially so, with digital signage now, because digital signage is such a big thing in libraries. Right. Yeah. And so you could easily have that. Um, if you, the audience wants to find me on LinkedIn, I have an article about the own a day technique there and also about uh, some other methods too. Sure. Um, and if you want, um, send me that so I can make it part of what we uh, put on the, our website too for the podcast. Sure. We'll do. Okay. So uh, think just about, any, I think just about anybody in the world knows that, you know, about crowdfunding with GoFundMe, Patreon, and all the other services that are out there and how, uh, you know, how do libraries make that work? And we talked about that a little bit earlier, um, but we have to keep in mind that scrutiny that libraries face, you know, with audits and state and county agencies and all that fun stuff. So how do you make that work, you know, and does it, is it really a, a viable revenue stream? Because usually those things hit and there's an initial wow, everybody hits it, and then it kind of just kind of fades away, or it kind of, you know, it just doesn't make that constant revenue stream. And this would be also for friends of the library organizations that are attached to libraries as well. Yeah, the, um, what, what's best with that is you need a specific cause where you have justifiable and quick results. Now, we just got hit by a bunch of hurricanes all throughout the South. You can bet that a number of those libraries are going to have crowdfunding mechanisms set up so they can replace materials in various departments and uh, just to get the operations rolling again. Because as much as the government would like to, like you know, throw money at libraries, there are also a million other different agencies that are going to be competing for those disaster relief funds. Right. So you need something for your own group of people, basically, and like you know, hopefully spread beyond to justify a specific cause. It's good to have a video. Uh, as engaging people. Uh, video always helps as far as like, you know, establish, here's what we need. Uh, one of the examples I used in the book had before and after of a, there was a library that was caught in a forest fire in Northern California, a small community. It showed this library prior to the fire and then a fire went through and just totally destroyed it. It showed the ruins. They had a crowdfunding effort for that to help rebuild. Uh, those are the different types of visual, emotionally gripping types of things that you want to be able to set up. If you Google crowdfunding Cornell, as in Cornell University, mm-hmm. Google that, you'll get to the Cornell Academic Libraries uh, or Cornell University uh, crowdfunding page. You would think a big university like Cornell, Ivy League school, would have like, they don't need to do this. You go there, you'll see a ton of different projects that are funded at like the $10,000, ten dollars to $15,000 level that have reached their goals and they're dealing with different types of research studies, different types of things that they want to do. And their slogan on the page is small projects, big impact. So the, I like that. What you want to do with crowdfunding is like, you're not, you're not shooting for the world. You're not going to set up like no replacement for your operating fund, but maybe it's going to be funding a local historian position. Mm -hmm. Now you establish it. You say like, uh, they have chairs endowed at universities. You can have something for a crowdfunding. So like, you know, okay, we've been asked, we know genealogy, it's an important part of our community. 
we get demands on that all the time from us. You know, we're not all we, we're not all trained in that. We'd like to establish a position. You know, we need fifty thousand dollars to do it. Does the community want to back this or not? A local historian, a local archivist, genealogist, mm-hmm. and just see how it goes. You know, you, you, or you want to do it part time, twenty-five thousand. Those are all different types of things I talk about in the book as far as establishing value and setting your costs. It's a lot of boring math, but uh, <laughs> it's important to do. And uh, once again, to get fair value and make sure that your project is a success, that you're not reaching for the moon. Um, but you know, uh, Ogmandino in the greatest salesman in the world said, you know, sometimes it's better to throw your spear at the moon and hit just an eagle than throw your spear at the eagle and hit only a rock. You know, if you want to shoot high, that's fine. But I take a little bit more of a logical approach and uh, a business-like approach to it. Okay, so can there be um, an effective and meaningful partnership between libraries and, and profit companies and organizations to raise to raise funding? Because this... This, to me, you know, it, it seems like it's partially uncharted territory, and I think it's uncharted territory because of the fear in, involved with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the organization follows the rules that I talked about as far as moves management, mm-hmm. um, the discovery process, the cultivation, the solicitation, and then the stewardship especially, you know, those are things that can really establish some good meaningful partnerships long term uh the main thing is establish your value to them you know getting to show that you can help them with their business goals you don't want to promise them numbers that gets into tax consequences and some other things if you say oh our event is going to draw five thousand people and it doesn't you've got some problems there number one you may not be eligible for the unrelated to business income tax even though it's just uh, an infrequent event you were promising to deliver something specific and you didn't. Or even if you did, you can still get taxed on that because you said, I'm delivering a specific product as opposed to help us out with this product. Right. And uh, it's basically, once again, that establishing value, it's one of the more radical concepts in the book, not only just establishing your value, but going in, in my humble opinion, libraries want to talk about themselves too much. If they could just twist the conversation a little towards what does a business owner need, you know, or a real pro in the advertising world and an advertising agency needs? They'll be very successful. Companies are going to be very flush within the next few years. Uh, with all the stuff about tax reform right now, you can see the way the wind is blowing. You know, taxes uh, are going to be reduced on corporations, private businesses, various other things. So they'll have more money to spend. And they'll all be competing. So they'll still be like, everybody's going to get a break. Great. Now we're all going to have a little more money to spend. We want to spend it in unique marketing channels. That's where the nonprofits and the libraries come in as far as having something that's like, you know, something that's a community-based type of thing that they would want to do. little historical lesson here. In advertising, there in the 19-teens and 20s when the discipline was first growing up, there were two schools of thought. Advertising should be uplifting, uplifting, uh, it should be encouraging people to do things. Brush your teeth with our stuff, and it'll be like you know, a much better person because of it. And then there are the advertising agencies who are the real pros, and they use quantitative statistics to say, we don't care what kind of message. We're going to throw out that name, Colgate, 50 times a day. And mm-hmm. if enough people hear the name, when they walk down their store shelves, they're going to pick up that brand. 
they're not going to think about, you know, whiter is brighter or anything like that, the message. And so uh, the real pros basically won. Um, library land would like to think that the uplifters, the communication of the messages is going to like uplift their communities and things like that. But that's why I say, you don't want to necessarily say all oh, the great things the libraries do and like you associated with us will be like really good. You'll get your impressions out to more people is basically, and you are of course helping. There are some extra benefits about helping the organization, helping your community, but keep in mind what you want to talk about is, sir, how many times, how many people have to see your name before they come in and buy your product or use your bike shop or take their car to your uh, service agency? And that's the main thing that the, you, you want to get across. You want to say, okay, how many times, what's it needed? And then you say, and don't promise the numbers, but also say, okay, here's a channel that we can use. Here's an event. Here's a, uh, a meeting room that gets used X amount of times last year. You're going to be associated with that. You know, they'll see your name that many times. Uh, it was the difference between encouragement versus statistics. And in the advertising uh, wars and the, the gradual evolution of the discipline, the statistics, statistics basically won. In fact, my, I remember my, uh, one of my broadcasting professors at OU, he was a little disappointed. He was old school. And he was like, you know, pretty soon it's just going to be computers talking to computers. And in a lot of ways, he's right. You know, people talk about, and I talk about it in the book, a cost per thousand statistic. Whereas people, you can measure how, what your value is based on the cost per thousand that's going to reach, the cost that's going to reach a thousand people. And uh, it's, it's a very simplistic type of thing. There's much more sophisticated ratings now, but libraries need to build up their, their own statistic and their, their way of translating what their, their product is. One of the reviews of my books called it Library Collateral which is an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that term before, but that's basically what the reviewer was saying. It's like, he's talking about using library collateral in order to enhance private funding. Mm -hmm. It's very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, there's all sorts of different scenarios that broadcasters use for that, different ways that they build relationships with their clients. They could send them to concerts. They could send them to, you know, do uh, fancy restaurants and different types of things like that. Libraries really don't have that. And, you know, we do have different types of programs. What you want to do is establish something. When I was in Denver, um, I started a radio program called Curtains Rising. It was right after the Berlin Wall fell down. Uh, the program director, Jim Condor, and I were talking about uh, the Berlin Wall and history. And we were playing music from Eastern Germany. We played Bach, Beethoven. Tchaikovsky, all those different types of names. And we said, what can we do about this? And I grew up in Cleveland, which is a heavy ethnic city. A lot of Poles, a lot of Serbians, a lot of Germans, a variety mm -hmm. of different people. So I'd always grown up. I knew how important an event this was. I said, Jim, let's have like a news and entertainment program where we talk about what's happening in Eastern Europe now. And then we also have like great music from, the, from that era, <clears throat> from that uh, geographic region, which was easy to do. We were playing it anyway. Sure. So we did research for it and then it worked out pretty well. It's like, you know, we got a lot of new sponsors and uh, the key thing is we created something that these sponsors wanted to bring to other people. We had like the little Russian tea room. They're proud of their heritage. And they said, yeah, you're doing a program that talks about us. We had various like, you know, people with a Hungarian background and various others that were like, no, they weren't necessarily 
uh, a Hungarian meats company or anything like that. They were just proud that we were doing something like that. And they were more than willing to support it. It makes sense. I mean, it, it, it it's almost as though um, it, it's just a tie-in more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I know that, that we do that uh, at Sachem. We have um, we have uh, local uh, we have book clubs that meet at local bars. So there's uh-huh. a there's a tie-in there. They're now getting business from from Versa Library buying appetizers for everybody that's there. But then people stay and maybe they have dinner or they have a few more drinks. And that they're getting their word out in our newsletter, and it's a reciprocal thing. Mm-hmm. So does the uh, does the restaurant uh, kick back like ten, twenty percent? They they give no, but they do to give a, give a discount for us making purchases for the apps and things like that, and then they, they provide the space for us. So that's a big thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. It's a nice environment. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a good it's a good reciprocal. Um, they're getting business from it, and we're able to use the space and and do something new and different. So it works out really well. You know, there was a guy named Howard Rock who was a financial planner. Mm-hmm. And one of his phrases were, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. <laughs> what you're doing now is basically you're, you're building that relationship. You know, that private business, that bar, Applebee's, whoever it is, uh, maybe like, you know, they'll be flush throughout the next few years, but your budget might be cut. So at least you're establishing... Your ratings, you're proving to them that you have like a, a, an audience that will take advantage of their product and things like that. And then, like you know, heaven forbid if things go south, you can turn to them and say, "Hey, you know, it wouldn't be bad if somehow we could arrange it so we do get a little bit out of this besides a nice place to sit and eat, and drink, and talk about books." Sure. And that's where, like you know, uh, we have to look at as far as like you know, if for whatever reason uh, library funding goes down, if the IMLS is cut. Or anything like that, uh, you're going to have to, like, you know, justify your arguments, but you're doing the right thing right now. And uh, I encourage all the libraries to take a look at that. How are we establishing our value? Their annual reports are usually pretty good with that. People put in statistics and then they sit there. In my book, I talk about using your annual report almost as a sales proposal mm-hmm. that you would go into a client and say, okay, Here's our annual report. You don't have to be duplicative of work and make something fancy. Just bring it in and say, okay, we had this much activity last year. Would you like to be part of this? <laughs> well, this is a, another great segue into uh, the next question because libraries are great, and I talk about this a lot. This is a publicity thing. You know, Libraries are great at reaching the captive audience, the people who come in, the people who, you know, who are frequenters of the library or, or quote-unquote patrons. But they're not always adept at reaching the general public. I mean, we put a newsletter out. It gets mailed to every address in, in the district. Um, but in, And, you know, we do social media and all that other stuff. But, again, if you're not engaged in some way with the library, social media is a tree falling in the woods. You know, if people don't read that newsletter or follow social media or read advertisements in a local penny saver or whatever newspaper that's local to you, um, you know, then who really hears about the great things the libraries are doing? You know, and what are some of the solutions you talk about in your book? Well, seeing it's football season, and even though I live in Cleveland and it's not the greatest representative football team right now, you can draw two analogies. First thing you want to do is beef up your frontline metrics with partnerships. 
Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, use your partners, the existing ones with your communications channels, uh, their communication channels. That example of a local tavern that you had, they may have a newsletter, they may have a Facebook page, they may reach a whole different audience than you do. So if they, you convince them to say, hey, you know, can you talk about our library night? You know, that would help. You know, you beef up your metrics that way for your events, as well as general knowledge about what the library is about. Um, partnerships, whatever ones you've already had established. You can even look who's using your meeting rooms and saying, okay, um, I know you're talking about the uh, the meeting room there. Can we go in just for a quick two minutes and like, you know, say something about the library? You know, those different types of things where people are just used to uh, just walking in and using the library and that's it. You know, that's a great way to be able to do it. Use your partnerships, their communication channels. Of course, you have to have great products to talk about, but uh, that will give you some like no extra weight there. And then also stretch the field using technology. Like, you know, you have like four wide receivers all going out at once. Mm-hmm. The, what you want to do with technology is like, basically there's all sorts of different things that are uh, accessible now and growing. Um, you can put flyers at the, these different partnerships you have, have a QR code on them so that they can come back and say, okay, if they scan it in, they'll go back into the library for more information or maybe for a registration process. For technology, you can use an online merchandiser to get your brand a little bit farther out to your community. Use podcasts like what we're doing now. Oh, gee, wow, podcasts. I never even thought of that. (laughs) But if you could do things so people can access things 24-7. That talk we had uh, last night about getting grants, we had... 70 people signed up for that, about 30 of them showed up. And uh, what I plan to do is like, you know, send them slides uh, of the uh, presentation for the other people, all 70 of them. But it's something else to extend it 24 seven, you know, to be able to do that. And then, and just like, you know, using technology like that. And then also study what's happening with the, the new Amazon Echo and other voice enabled speaker systems. That's getting to be really big right now. The uh, Instead of like reading in bed, maybe a couple years down the line, some people will be listening to a story in bed. Or it'll give you, you can access it and get, get an update of children's room activities for the day. Hey, Alexa, you know, what do you like, you know, library schedule, have an oral newsletter for nannies or caregivers. According to recent radio research uh, that I, I read, like just within the last couple of weeks, there was a study done. It had 3,000 respondents 450 Echo owners, and they said there's a real potential for a resurgence of audio-only media usage in the morning. Right now, media shows in the morning, it's like uh, they've known for a long time, they use the bedroom TV for morning news, and they're not even watching it. They're listening to it. They're going about doing the showers, getting dressed, cooking breakfast. The morning news shows on, on the TV. And they said, well, you know, smart speakers allow people to access all sorts of audio information and entertainment. You know, radio's doing a good job with morning talk too, but you know, the podcasts that are out there offered up by NPR, New York Times, and all of those um, are suggesting that basically people uh, through the smart speakers are listening to podcasts as much as they are morning radio now. And the smart speakers, they, they're just advising like, you know, um, don't think for a minute Habits have solidified yet with these smart speakers. People are trying all sorts of different sources and services. You know, they're not glued to listening to a KOA or WTAM or 
watching the, having the Today Show on in the background or the morning edition, when they've got these speakers, it's it's new and it's fresh. And a number of radio stations are, are working at like trying to how to let their audience know that you can access them or a little snippet of information that they're offering, daily news briefs or whatever, through these things. And the libraries could do the same thing. You need to think outside the box when it comes to technology and look for opportunities. Uh, one of the things I did at Lakewood Library, I found in this old uh, shelf, uh, an archive, basically an archival document. We had built a monument to the uh, soldiers and sailors who died in World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And a librarian 20 years ago, or 20 years prior to when I did this, had uh, documented all their names, uh, their addresses, and this, as much as she could discover the circumstances of their deaths. And what we did was we converted that into an image map of city of Lakewood using the street addresses. And people could look on their street and say, okay, who is like, who had passed on from World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. And we won a ton of awards for it. And uh, basically it showed in a practical way, the cost of war to a generation that never really experienced it. Many parents came up to the technology center saying, thanks for helping their children understand the history what's going on, cost of war. There was a hero in Okinawa on one guy's street. Another guy was, he, he escaped from prison. There should be a movie about this guy. Northern part of Lakewood is where he lived. And he went and he uh, led a guerrilla team almost a year before he was recaptured and then shot while trying to escape. Wow. I know that's Silver Star, but that brought history alive to people just through the image map. And you know, this is before the era of apps, but libraries can do that. They can extend their reach and their historical knowledge and archival information into their communities using new technology. And uh, I really think that's a way to stretch the field to get more people involved in supporting the library. And uh, and also going back to those traditional things like levies and taxes, when there's a, something that comes up, they're gonna go, yeah, that library is part of my life every day. That's, you know, and that's really interesting you talk about the historical end of it because uh... A friend of mine who I'm going to mention later because she's responsible for naming our top 10 list, uh, she's a local history librarian, and she came up with the idea there are a lot of um, Revolutionary War and Civil War veterans that are buried in the community that she serves. And she wanted to, uh, I don't know if she's actually implemented this yet, but she wanted to um, acquire what are called eye beacons, which are basically um, devices that push, that connect to your device through Bluetooth and they send out information. So she wanted to set them up in these cemeteries so you would have like a walking tour of the cemetery to say, you know, this person fought in the War of 1812, this person fought in, in Manassas, this person fought in, you know, the Battle of Long Island, and, you know, all these other things. And it's a, it's a great concept to do. And the marketing for that could very well be just drive, when you're driving past, your phone connects to it and it tells you about it. So... I understand exactly where you're coming from with regard to the, the historical um, example. It, it really is something that I think every, every town has history. It's just a yeah. way of getting the history out to people who don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and using that technology and then um, throwing it back to my theme, mm-hmm. find a memorial service company, things like that, and say, you know, who have, once again, a lot of them have a lot of money, they're owned by corporations. And uh, Holy Cross Cemetery, whatever it is, you know, they might say, oh, you know, that's 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 an honorable thing, and it's aligned with our business plan. 
So like, you know, instead of the library pumping in all sorts of money and like, you know, not recouping it back, I mean, that project could stall if she doesn't have enough resources. Sure, sure. It doesn't, but to be able to get the, the project developed and uh, well-marketed and let the community know about it, boom, look for a partner. Absolutely. Well, we have to thank you for all the, the interesting and valuable tips that you've given us. Um, you know, the ideas that you have, you know, for revenue streams are innovative and seem to really be effective in creating new streams for funding. Um, where can we find the book to purchase? Is the, it's in the ALA store, correct? It's at the ALA store, yeah. If you, or if you, like, uh, Google uh, 40-plus new revenue sources. Excellent. That bring you to the link for that. It's a complex kind of link. Um, but it's in the ALA store, and the uh, basically uh, that's the best way to find it. And we'll link to it on our site too. Um, What's that? And we'll link to it on the website as well. Yeah. And, oh, and it's also in uh, Ingram. I think they can find it there. Uh, maybe Baker and Taylor for uh, I, I, I forgot. I, I'm working with librarians here, so you probably <laughs> have, uh, your different vendors who are also you might be able to get a, a decent discount on it perhaps. Sure. Sure. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to ask Ed our top 10 library questions with the 032 list, which is the Dewey number that corresponds to top 10 lists. These questions we ask uh, of all of our guests, and thank you to Melanie Cardone, who we just spoke about earlier, uh, from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list. So we will be right back. Hi, and we're back talking with Ed Rossman, librarian and author of 40-plus Revenue Streams for Libraries and Nonprofits, who will be our next participant or victim for our 032 list. And the questions uh, were inspired by the library. By the library. I always mess this plug up. It's crazy. It's like I have a mental block. Uh, It's inspired by the questions are inspired by the website Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com and check them out. They do a great job educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. So thank you, Literary Hub. I almost messed up again. I do that every single time. So question one, what did you want to be when you were a child? And yeah, what did you want? I'm sorry. What, yeah, what did you want to be when you were a child? I'm sorry. Well, um, a writer, I suppose, a child. My father was a policeman. I always, like, you know, uh, figured I'd go into the footsteps with him. But I read so much comic books and things that uh, my eyesight became a little bit uh, screwed up. And unfortunately, I would not be able to. I didn't. I wasn't able to pass a vision test. But I always liked writing. Uh, as far as being a child, uh, you know, I didn't have any career goals. I didn't even have them, as I said in the beginning, my first year in college. Uh, not until I hit the... Uh, radio station up my college radio station oh that's great so what was your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time well uh the first library really that i remember was the one across from my elementary school in cleveland there was a bus stop in front of it that i had to take to get back to home ascension elementary school 
And uh, I went to the library. We'd have to hang out there for like a half hour. So I was one of those kids that would like, you know, rush into the library. In my first book, it's called Castles Against Ignorance, which talks about library operations and uh, attitudes. There is a chapter about light and the environment inside the library. And this library, I, I talk about it, is that it had a beautiful western facing window, really high. And my best memory, one of my best memories of the library is uh, being able to go inside, stay warm, look at that window during the winter time, you'd see the sunset. And it was just really, really a great memory. I'd read a little bit, probably didn't do too much work, but I'd stay out. And then when the bus came, I'd go out and catch the bus. <laughs> okay, so uh, when did you decide to work in a library? Oh, when after uh, broadcasting, I decided I needed job security. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, if uh, library library wasn't your first career path, um, what was your um, what was your um, original thought? Was it to go into radio? Well, I enjoyed broadcasting. When I was uh, going for a graduate degree, I always wanted to. The big thing there was public telecommunication centers. Uh, Ohio University had one. It combined radio, TV, cable programming uh, into the foothills of the Appalachians. And uh, it was just a cluster of different types of mediums. And that that was inspirational. I really enjoyed that. Joe Welling was the director. He was one of the guys on my, one of the three guys on my mentoring board through graduate school. And uh, it was really, the, you know, I would have loved to have done that. Nowadays, though, who knew? Libraries could be like public telecommunication centers. They can stream video. They can stream audiocasts, podcasts like you're doing. You know, they have the resources for books, physical spaces for like, you know, the community meetings. So in a way, I'm, I, I've, I've achieved what I was, uh, would have been like a secondary goal or like initially a goal for me, being mm -hmm. able to work and contribute to one of these types of facilities. And hopefully through the book, making other ones more sustainable giving them the resources they need so they can carry on their own missions of communities throughout the country. Okay, so who is your favorite fictional librarian? Well, I've got two. And being a Stephen King fan, they're both from Stephen King books. He was an English teacher. And he likes to talk up libraries and literary things, as well as monsters and creepy things. Mike Hanlon is a librarian in the, the movie called It, which mm -hmm. is just out in theaters right now. Right now it's showing... Uh, the, the people as a kid, <clears throat> as children. And he's the uh, young black guy that the uh, Losers Club rescue from uh, bullies. Mike Hanlon stays in town. He's a, a, a librarian who's keeping an eye out for a monster. And, you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything. Stop me there as far as explaining what the it is all about. Mm -hmm. But Mike Hanlon was one. He was a good character for that. Then also in a book called Firestarter, at the end, last three or four pages, Charlie, who has escaped these bad government agents and lost her father, and she's a little fire starter girl, she remembers her dad told her, whenever you have a hard question, go to the library, because the library always has, almost always has, the answers. So she goes in, she finds a librarian, he does an excellent reference interview with her, basically. <laughs> Uh, does like reflective listening. Okay, so you're looking for somebody who's honest, who's nationwide, no ties to the government. He takes off what she's looking for, like a good librarian should. And uh, I don't want to get into the rest of the story there, but uh, once again, no spoiler, but he's also, uh, he's an unnamed librarian, but he's also like one of my favorites. And 
uh, one that any uh, adult services or any librarian or reference librarian or whatever should be uh, proud to be somebody who's like reflective, not preconceptualizing what the question is, but just ticking off. That was another one, a favorite one in, uh, uh, as a fictional librarian. <laughs> so what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Well, if I could, I'd be a professional golfer, but uh, <laughs> working, working in a, a public broadcasting maybe or teaching. I subbed for a year before going for my library degree at Kent and uh, all the grades. And uh, I enjoyed that, but I just enjoyed the, a little bit more stability that the library had. And uh, I, I just preferred that environment. So I, I stuck with that. But teaching might have been another area where I went. So what is your favorite section of the library? Oh, besides the Stephen King section? Yeah. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say the 158s, Dewey System 158s, where the motivational books are. I already mentioned The Greatest Salesman in the World and uh, Stephen Covey and things like that. I enjoy reading those different types of inspirational books. Okay, if you had an infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? Digital studios, absolutely. There's been like discussion of maker spaces and things like that. I'm a little bit more specific, Chris, in this. I would get digital studios because we're becoming, I hate to say it, away from like the, the literary type of uh, population, but digital, being able to do podcasts, being able to do video streaming, those skills I think will be essential. They'll make people more employable. They'll be able to like, you know, pursue their dreams better on, uh, on a contractual basis. I've got a nephew who's doing, he does like side work, working for film production. You know, it's not his main gig. His main gig is an apartment manager for hundreds of different types of rooms, but he loves vid, uh, film production. And if I could help people in some way, shape or form, uh, I built out each library would have uh, good state-of-the-art digital studios where you learn that craft and be able to create things. That's great. I agree 100% with the digital studios. Uh, so what do you love about your library? I like the variety of formats that we can offer people. We use the playaways for like um, being able to walk around. I could put like a little something about the size of a cigarette pack in my pocket and go out and like work in my garden, my yard, and listen to a story at the same time. Um, same thing with like audio cast now, but still those different types of things, the DVDs, the, uh, of course, the books, um, the different things that we make available online, uh, those different types of formats. The multi-format aspect of the library is what I like, not only ours, but all the libraries. Okay, so what is the weirdest, not necessarily worst, but the weirdest thing that has ever happened in your library? This is one of my favorite questions. Yeah, we had a homeless man living in the stacks. There was two big shelves of books, and they were separated by columns. This was in Lakewood Library before they had a renovation. There were support columns going up to the ceiling, mm -hmm. so the stacks couldn't really shut together. And there was a gap of maybe about a yard. And um, this gentleman noticed that, and uh, he wouldn't, I, I don't think he was there every night, but he had a sleeping bag there. He had uh, like you know, stuff that he had there. And he would wait until like, near the close of the end of the night in an obscure area. This was an obscure area of the library. And he would just pop over this uh, uh, shelving of books, which is about probably six feet high. I mean, he had to be really stealthy about it. But he would hop over there, and he slept there. And they, they had him there for a while. And then finally somebody noticed him jumping up like that and, uh, you know, had to evict him. But that was about the weirdest thing, somebody hiding in between the shelves. 
That, that's a good one. I think oh. I think you're winning the prize right now for the best story. That's I'm a good sorry. one. Okay, yeah. so our last question is: What are people without library cards missing out on? I think personal freedom, a chance to advance themselves, to grow more educated and enlightened about this really complex world we're living in. Not to be a prisoner of bias or fake news. Um, libraries give you an opportunity to escape maybe a routine life. Libraries free people, you know, and it's a, basically what I think uh, library cards bring to people. They give them freedom. And that's a great slogan if you ever get a cafe press operation going in your library. Libraries free people. I think that's good. I think that's accurate. Yeah, I guess I definitely agree with that. Well, I want to thank you for your time and for being such a good sport and answering the list of questions. And this is really a good a good podcast. This is a lot of fun. So just to well, get, really, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I hope it helped a lot of people. Oh, I'm sure it will. Um, so just uh, one more time, Ed's book is 40 Plus New Revenue Streams for Libraries and Nonprofits. Uh, it can be found on the ALA store, and we'll have that link on our um, on our website. And he's also on Facebook at facebook.com slash R-E-V, the number 4-L-I-B, so that's Rev4Lib. And uh, that's where you'll have updates um, as things occur that update your book. And you can also find him on LinkedIn, which we will get a link to on our website as well. So if, uh, we'll have all the links up, and we should have them ready to go pretty soon, and everyone can check out his book. Uh, it's a great addition to any library's professional collection, too, because uh, I think I, I think the library profession is going to benefit. Uh, but I can imagine that just general not-for-profits could be- benefit from it as well. So that's all the time we have for this edition. Um, so if you have any questions or comments on our show, go to the Contact Us section of our website at thelibrarypros.com, where, we'll, where we will also have notes and links from all of our episodes. And you can check us out at Twitter at, at the Library Pros or on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. Please don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, which is now Apple Podcasts, Android email, and Google Play. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, if Bob were here, and not those of the Station Public Library, uh, the MS Clark Memorial Library, which is Bob's library, or any other library. So thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>